This is the story of how an iconic fighter plane was built against all the odds by ordinary men and women. This was a plane that won the Battle of Britain and kept the Nazi invasion at bay. But all of that nearly never happened. This is Spitfire, the people's plane. Last time, we heard how the factories were bombed, machinery in ruins, and production of the Spitfire stopped in its tracks. By June 1940, France had fallen to the Germans, and now, just a short distance across the English Channel, the Luftwaffe grows in strength. Hundreds of new fighters and bombers roll fresh off the production line every month. Winston Churchill has just come to power to find Britain's own aircraft production plagued with problems. It's a dangerous moment for Britain, and he knows it. What General Vagan has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. I think when we think about Britain in 1940, the story that we're told is of Britain being weak, of it being vulnerable. It had just suffered a colossal military defeat with the fall of France. Daniel Todman is Professor of Modern History at Queen Mary University of London. He's written extensively on this period of the Second World War. It wasn't yet as ready for the sort of conflict it found itself in in the summer of 1940 as Germany was, for example. Britain needs aircraft. It needs them fast. But building the high-speed fighters that Britain needs, the Spitfires, is expensive. One of the things that the British were concerned about at the beginning of the war is how will the war be paid for? Churchill's solution is twofold. First, he creates a brand new government department, the Ministry of Aircraft Production. Secondly, he puts a man in charge of this department who he thinks can get the job done a man to shake up the entire industry and turn aircraft production around. A small, wiry firebrand of a man, Max Aitken, better known as Lord Beaverbrook. Lord Beaverbrook is a Canadian, the press baron. He'd been involved in British politics at the end of the First World War, which is how he'd got to know Winston Churchill and they'd become good friends. And he's particularly powerful in 1940 because he's useful to Churchill. We must recognise the skill and the genius of the men who design our airplanes. They have done a wonderful job. We must take pride in their work and give them high praise. I'm Maxwell Beaverbrook. I'm the third Lord Beaverbrook. I am the grandson of the first Lord Beaverbrook. My grandfather arrived from Canada. He reinvented himself as a British politician. He'd been friendly with Winston Churchill for decades. Perhaps they shared some traits of being regarded as unorthodox and at times non-establishment. The spirit of the men and women engaged in the aircraft industry. The spirit of our Prime Minister. For when the call to duty was sounded by Churchill, it rang like a trumpet through the factories and the foundries of those who make aircraft. I suspect that Winston Churchill saw a lot of himself in my grandfather. There would be 
huge rows between them occasionally, and they wouldn't speak for a month or two, and then they would be back as uh, best of friends. Lord Beaverbrook shook up Britain's aircraft production in a pretty extraordinary way. He was feisty, no nonsense. He did things his way. Alex Henshaw, who was a Spitfire test pilot, said he was an unpleasant bastard, but he was the right man in the right place at the right time. Beaverbrook cajoled and bullied and quite simply hustled Britain into producing more, always more, aircraft for the dogfights to come. But the first problem he had to wrestle with was money. How was the government, still financially reeling from the First World War and the Depression of the 1930s, going to pay for the planes they needed? Beaverbrook had an idea. And it began with a couple of extraordinary donations. The Gleaner, a newspaper in Jamaica that wanted to do something for the war effort, wrote to Beaverbrook, asking how much a single bomber aircraft cost to build. A rough estimate was sent back of £20,000 and the money was promptly wired in. Next, Sir Harry Oakes, a Canadian millionaire, sent a similar message, asking how much a Spitfire cost to build. Again, the Ministry worked up an estimate of £5,000. Sir Harry sent a cheque. And this sort of caught Beaverbrook's attention. Andrew Dennis from the RAF Museum in Hendon in London. They decided that it was something they could do to generate public support for the war effort. The result was the Spitfire Fund. The public themselves would pay. That idea of wanting to help caught the public's imagination because they could see these battles going on above their homes, unable to do anything directly, but by contributing they could feel they were actually making a difference. A completed Spitfire, ready to fly, was priced at £5,000. But it wasn't just whole Spitfires. Everything was given a price. The Merlin engine alone was £2,000, a spark plug was eight shillings, and a petrol tank was £40. For every part, there was a coin to pay for it. One rivet was sixpence, 60 screws was five shillings, so everybody felt whatever they donated could make a difference. There's one boy, Peter Bottomley, he was collecting funds in Guildford, knocking on doors and shaking cans. They sent off a cheque and they got a letter back from Buckingham Palace saying, thank you, you've raised enough money to buy a tyre for the rear wheel of a Spitfire. But he looked up and every time he saw a Spitfire, he thought, is that my rear wheel's tyre? So it really engaged the public in the war effort. The idea caught fire. Up and down the country, in towns and villages, community groups, families and workplaces, people threw their money into jars and buckets with the aim of putting one more Spitfire into the air. The papers were full of them. Three gifts, each of £5,000, are among a number of gifts towards the purchase of aircraft acknowledged by the Minister of Mrs aircraft. Warners of Boston Spa have given money in memory of their brother, Lieutenant John Weston Warner, DFC, who was killed in action. Collections are being started in carpet factories and schools. It is hoped to raise £5,000 in four weeks. Wealthy individuals, towns and villages, clubs and communities, everyone joined in. Oh, there's hundreds of them people with the same name, like there was a Dorothy's of Great Britain and Empire, um, and that bought a Spitfire. <laughs> uh, the Dorothy Fund included a, a dog, a cat, a calf and a swan. A nine-year-old Liverpool girl has started her own Spitfire Fund and is appealing to children everywhere to support it. 
She is Pamela Weeks, daughter of Brigadier Weeks. In her appeal letter, Pamela says, My daddy is a soldier, and if we can win the war quickly, all our daddies will soon be with us. At night, when we have to go to the shelter, it is no use being grumpy, but none of us mind if we know there are lots of planes to chase Mr. Hitler. Every penny will help, says Pamela. It takes on a life of its own. We have a flow of contributions coming in, all of them sent to us for the purpose of buying aircraft. We value the cheque for £25,000, but we value, too, the gift from the telephone operators at Winchester, who sent us 38 shillings to buy screws for the Spitfire. To put you in a generous mood, there was even a song. British planes are in the sky, weighs on their daily vigil bar. The Spitfire song, it was written under the title The Hampshire Spitfire Song by Horace Maybray King. The word Hampshire in the song could be replaced by Southampton or Northampton or Yorkshire and could be sung by people from different parts of the country who were contributing to the Spitfire funds. There was a Bournemouth version, a Tyneside version, and this patriotic version was recorded by the popular dance band Joe Loss and his orchestra. Hello from Market Lavington Museum. I'm Sue Frost, the volunteer curator here. If you want to see a vision of what people think England looks like, but seldom actually does, then visit Market Lavington in the southwest of England. They still have all the records of their very own Spitfire Fund. Market Lavington got involved in raising money right from the very beginning of World War II, and they were deciding all the time when they were going to have the next whist drive, when they were going to have the next dance, all that sort of thing. Fortunately, we have all the accounts books, receipts, payments. Two people gave threepence, which is a quarter of a shilling. Two gave fourpence, that's a third of a shilling. There was a little girl who donated all her pocket money, which was sixpence. 17 gave sixpence, that's half of a shilling. 53 gave a shilling, 20 shillings made a pound. Cliff Hall, which was a hotel, were charging their guests a halfpenny every time a German plane was brought down. Four donations of three shillings, eight of five shillings and four of ten shillings. There was another collection organised by the Green Dragon, which is now the only pub that still remains in Market Lavington. And they had drawn out a picture of a Spitfire, a metre across, and they asked their customers to put silver coins within the shape of the Spitfire and to surround it with copper coins. And apparently it was filled within a few days. We think it came to about £8 in total, It would have needed about 600 efforts from the Green Dragon to raise that £5,000 for a Spitfire. In Scotland, the people of the North Sea fishing town of Arbroath set up their fund in August 1940. They did all kinds of fundraising events. They threw a concert with music hall star Sir Harry Lauder. I've seen lots of bunny lasses on my travels They had a male voice choir from the Polish army. There was a boxing tournament and a dance organised by the police. Two years later, a brand new Spitfire Mark V EP-121 was delivered to the RAF at Burtonwood. They called her the Red Lichty, after the red light of Arbroath Abbey, which used to shine across the harbour to guide the fishermen home. Extraordinarily, the logbook from the Red Lichty survived. 
It shows every little detail of her life. It shows her flying rhubarb missions, which was the code for small-scale attacks on ground targets, and roadstead missions, dive-bombing ships out at sea. It shows her time escorting bombers to short-range targets to lure German fighters into battle. She suffered the ripping away of her radiator shield on a high-speed dive. And on the 29th of June, 1943, in the company of Canadian pilot Sergeant W.H. Palmer, on approach to an airfield in Lincolnshire, her engine cut out. She stalled and spun earthwards. She smashed into the ground. Sergeant Palmer survived, but the Red Lichty did not. This extraordinary document shows exactly what people got for their money. A fighter. The story of the Spitfire Fund, you might think, is a story of pennies here and there, from whist drives and charity football matches all over the British Isles. And you'd be right. <laughs> yeah, you could say it's a village fate on a large scale. But that's not all it was. It's not just within the UK, it, is, it goes global. Strangely enough, South America were very active in raising funds. In September of 1940, a small number of expats met in a hotel in Buenos Aires and decided to start fundraising. And they created an organisation called the Fellowship of the Bellows. It's a jocular secret society. Funds through fun was their catchphrase. The name, Fellowship of the Bellows, it was about raising funds for the Air Force and a bellows obviously creates a force of air, so all their references are about creating wind. Um, <laughs> sorry. The chairman is called the High Wind, the Wind Bag is the treasurer, and the uh, attractive lady member is known as the Wind Lass. They have a secret handshake, and if you meet a fellow bellow, you have to say, hello, fellow bellow. It's, yeah, it's just it's a fun organisation. Rather unbelievably, it seemed to work. In Argentina, the membership rose to about 60,000. It wasn't just Argentina. Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, Mexico, they all had fellowships of the bellows. It caught on in a big way. The Brazilian fellowship, as they like to call themselves, they raised enough money to buy nine Spitfires. The president's wife was a member of the Bellowship. It seems slightly different from the UK one of, you know, um, Johnny sending in sixpence. It was organised dances and quite glamorous, I guess. In the space of a year, from the UK and abroad, £13 million was raised for the war effort, equivalent to £650 million today. Beaverbrook's scheme was a runaway success. And I send my warmest thanks now to all those who by their contributions have given inspiration and encouragement to the aircraft ministry. On behalf of the aircraft industry, we will try to face with fortitude the ordeal of battle. But Daniel Todman from Queen Mary University of London isn't so sure. £13 million is nothing in terms of the colossal investment that the British government's making in fighting the war. It also has no real effect on how many Spitfires are built. So if you want to think about a battle of mines, this is really important, but in terms of a battle of pounds or a battle of factories, this makes no difference at all. They are first and foremost a morale and publicity and propaganda effort. Even if the Spitfire funds weren't quite the deciding factor in the Battle of Britain, they did help win a different kind of battle. The battle for the hearts and minds on the home front. 
the Spitfire rapidly becomes a symbol of resistance. The pennies raised were, in fact, funneled into the government's coffers and may actually have been spent on anything – battleships or rifles or soldiers' wages. But the Spitfire was the symbol that united Britain and got ordinary people to dig deep into their near-empty pockets. It would have helped people to feel part of what was going on. They're suffering when their sons are killed actually on active service. There was rationing and uh, there was a shortage of food. So although they were trying to still you know, keep smiling and carry on and were having their uh, whist drives to raise money, it obviously wasn't the life that they would have wished for. The Spitfire Fund will also have let the local population feel that they were being involved and that they were doing something significant to the war effort and helping to bring war to an end. If we are put to the trial by fire, we think we can demonstrate that the workers in the aircraft industry will not fail you. At our posts we will stay. At our duty we will stand. At our benches we will meet and defeat the enemy who dares to drive liberty from the land of freedom. In the next episode, would the Spitfires they needed actually be built in time? We find out what it really takes to turn plans into planes. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in the promised land. The story of the founding of Israel. The kibbutz grows and grows behind its watchtowers. How can our village survive? A podcast drama from the BBC World Service. If we get what we want, there will be war. If we don't, there will be war. Miriam. We have so much in common. We belong here like anyone else. And Yusuf. All I can see from here are your fences. All I can hear is your pipes pumping our wells dry. Two stories. No! Let it burn! Like tinder! One shared history. We have become killers! Killers! How has that happened? Miriam and Yusuf. Search for Miriam and Yusuf. That's M-I-R-I-A-M and Y-O-U-S-S-E-F, wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening and a warm welcome to another edition of Calendar. Good news today from North Yorkshire County Council. Experience it. In some cases, have here in the studio.